class um, that we do to dedicate our hearts to the scriptures that we learn today. So let's say this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. All right, you can sit down. Okay, so we're in Matthew 26 today. It's a really long chapter, and a lot, it's moving pretty fast. A lot of different events and discussions and, and action, too. It's not all just uh, teaching. A little bit different than Matthew 25 and some of the chapters preceding this, where it's a lot of Jesus speaking and talking and people asking questions to challenge him, to trap him, or to clarify his views on the scripture. Something to briefly review, it's not, um, at least for the purpose of this class, it's not key to understand these things in great depth, but this will help some of the context, I think, to understand the last week of Jesus' life, because he is a devoted Jew. He is in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And around the time of the Passover, there are a few interlocking Jewish festivals or traditions happening around the same time. And it's these three. So first, we've got the Passover meal. It's described, of course, in Exodus, both in teaching and commands from God, as well as the actions of the first time the Passover happened. This happens in conjunction with um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And one of the Jewish practices and traditions on the Day of Unleavened Bread is the Jews, the whole nation would pray, God, King of all the earth, give us life out of the earth. Give us life out of the ground. And then the next day, uh, or the next feast following that, uh, was first fruits. We acknowledge that God has provided um, life. He has provided food so that we would be able to have life. Um, and that kind of, that follows the previous two festivals very closely. And the way it worked out in Jesus' life uh, is very interesting here. Okay, so the timeline of the Passover, and then in red, I've tried to kind of clarify the last week of Jesus' life, how it played out for him. So the lamb is selected on the tent. You go to the temple, you select the lamb that you will have for the next few days, and then that you will kill a few days later for the Passover meal. We call that Palm Sunday in Jesus' life. And Jesus is coming through into Jerusalem. And remember, He weeps because the people don't understand who He is. They are chanting for Jesus as He comes into Jerusalem that He will be a conquering king. And He will eliminate this oppressive Roman rule. And Jesus is weeping. And He's sad about this. Why? Because Jesus is their Passover lamb. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's saying, pick me. I'm enough. Pick me. But they, you know, they, they see him differently. Then Jesus is in the temple in the next few days, in a sense being examined 
Some of the gospel writers point out the different groups of Jewish leaders that were questioning him and examining him to see if he had any blemishes, right? If he was a pure, undefiled lamb. And remember, he answers all their questions extremely well. He silences them. A couple, maybe all the gospel writers say, you know, eventually they stopped questioning him because they couldn't pin him down on anything. So Jesus is our spotless lamb. Um, And he goes through the temple through an inspection period. The family will sacrifice the lamb on the 13th. And then the Seder or the meal, the actual Passover meal is on the 14th. Um, There are daily sacrifices in the temple um, twice a day. Um, So there's the temple sacrifice that also happens on the 14th. That temple sacrifice is for the entire nation. Whereas your Passover lamb sacrifice, that is for you and your family. It's more uh, localized, I guess you could say, instead of big. So that, that is for your family. Then, on the 15th, okay, this is the timeline of Jesus last week, or it's something very close to, get to this. Unleavened bread happens on the 15th, that particular festival. Now remember, on the 15th, The Jewish nation is praying. Remember this? God, King of all the earth, give us life out of the earth. And who is in the earth on this day? It's Jesus Himself. That's pretty stunning. God's timing for what He's doing. The Jews are praying for life out of the ground while Jesus is in the ground. And then first fruits, which is the day after the Sabbath uh, on this particular timeline for Jesus. Jesus is raised out of the earth. And Paul understands this as a devoted Jew. He writes to the Corinthians, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So, this is, you know, I'm I'm giving an overview. There's just so much here uh, that, you know, again, you could spend years studying this, you know, being focused on this. There's so many fascinating parallels that, again, you've got to, Know the Old Testament. Uh, you got to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament studying and learning to have a better grasp of Jesus' own life and the timeline. Okay, so to Matthew 26. Uh, in the first few verses, you see some of the Jewish leaders who are planning and plotting to kill Jesus. And these are the leaders uh, who saw Jesus as a threat to their power. And in their, in their minds, it was okay to kill him, to stop him. Uh, you know, I, I think more the Sadducees and the leaders of the Jews were threatened by his power more than this is a false Messiah. I don't think that was the motivation so much as the leaders felt threatened by what Jesus was doing and proposing. So the leaders at the top who are in the temple are threatened by Jesus, this rabbi from a town that doesn't get a ton of respect in Nazareth. Right next to it, the the verses following, we have a different story where a woman um, has this 
very expensive, fragrant oil and, you know, washes his, his feet and puts it all over him. So this beautiful fragrance fills the house. Uh, this beautiful fragrance put on Jesus. And she, in a different way, sees him as the Messiah who they have been waiting for. And she is not threatened by what Jesus is doing and proposing and kind of this movement that he has started within the Jewish people. She's not threatened by it as opposed to um, the priests who are threatened by it. And you see the suffering at the bottom in this town of Bethany are not threatened by a man who was already humble and continued to humble himself further. To explore it a little bit more. Bethany means house of the poor or house of misery. And some believe it was a leper colony. It's not totally confirmed necessarily, but a lot of scholars would say that Bethany uh, was a leper colony. This raises interesting questions about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why were they there? Were they lepers or were they caring for lepers? But these are some of Jesus' closest friends. And in this story in Matthew, in particular, he's at the home of Simon who uh, was or is a leper. So it's interesting, the priests in the temple, the leaders of the Jewish people, love their power and prominence in ruling over the people. Jesus is different. He's in uh, a place of the unclean. So this woman comes, and it's, it's viewed as, and Jesus views this as an anointing moment. And some of the disciples, I think one gospel points out it was, and Matthew kind of alludes to this, that it was Judas who was saying, this fragrance um, that comes from what this woman bought, this oil that she put on Jesus, that was a lot of money. That cost her a lot of money. Instead, we should take that, sell it, get the money, and give it to the poor. And I, I think this is a, called what, I, what uh, one author I read, he likes to call this virtue signaling. You're, you know, you're trying to show off virtue in what you say, but there's nothing really underlying it that's real. So you've got the disciples, uh, maybe Judas... Um, more than the others, maybe it was all of them, who thinks, you know, this is a waste of money. And Jesus says, no, this is totally appropriate because she sees me for who I really am. And she's willing to pay a price. It costs her something. It costs her a lot. And I think that's a lesson for us. It costs us a lot. Sometimes money, it costs us a lot to declare to ourselves and to the people around us who Jesus is and our relationship to Jesus. And I think it says there's a lesson in here too that Jesus is trying to point out that, hey, she gave her money, she sacrificed her money to bless me and put me up on a pedestal. So don't go, you know, throwing rocks at her. You take care of your money, and you do that with your money. Go give it to the poor. That's fine. 
But this is what she's chosen to do, and it's the right thing for her to do. He then says this phrase, for you have the poor with you always, which comes from Deuteronomy 15, which is a chapter about canceling debts every seven years. And in Deuteronomy 15, it says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Again, I think this is Jesus saying, you know the verse. You know the command in Deuteronomy 15. You take care of the poor yourself. But she's, she's taking care of me. Jesus is not a wealthy person. right? There's really no mention at all in the gospel that Jesus had a lot of money. He relied on other people's generosity, including right here. And then last on, on this point before the next slide to continue it, Messiah means anointed one. So this woman really recognizes and is willing to put into action her view that Jesus should be anointed. And again, a fragrance at this time, if you put it on uh, his feet or his hands, it would have filled the house, this beautiful smell. Everybody would have smelled it. And if Jesus is walking through from then on for a time, probably a few days, people would smell it. There would be a good smell and people would go, where's it coming from? Oh, it's coming from him. He must have been anointed. That's, that's the Messiah walking through. Uh-huh. Well, most of the warnings you think done by men to other men, or is this unusual to have a woman doing You know, that's a good question. I don't know that, actually. I don't know. And we don't know really who this woman is. Is her name Mary? I can't well, some gospel, yeah, the other gospels would say it's Mary uh, from uh, Martha's sister. Oh, Martha's I think. And that, am I remembering that right? Is anybody? Mary and Judas were very popular. Yes. I think I think Martha's sister. It is Mary, right. Mary, yeah. Mary, Mary Martha Lazarus. Mary Martha. Right. Yep. Which, which culturally is appropriate for her. It'd be very culturally inappropriate if a woman who did not know him came up and started anointing him. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he's living in the house with Mary Martha Lazarus are essentially his family. Right. And so that would be in that day culture appropriate for her to do that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so but, but certainly it caught people off guard. It's not like people were expecting an anointing. This wasn't a service to anoint. It, was, it caught people off guard, the disciples off guard. They were critical of it. And Jesus says, no, she recognizes me as who I am. And, and the other thing is, the most common time you anointed people was after death. Mm -hmm. And he says in Matthew, yeah. this is for my burial. Right. Yeah. That, that was when you put people in the tomb you would wrap them in oils and fragrances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good point. So we said Messiah means you are anointed. You are the anointed one. And Jesus is the anointed one. Christ means the same thing as Messiah. Um, you know, Christ is not part of his name. It's not Jesus' last name. 
Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Jesus Christ means. And we must take the same path as Jesus does in our own life. Um, Jesus, if even the Son of God had to die to himself and come back to new life raised by God, we must also take the same path. And in Philippians 2, uh, some of, uh, one of the more famous New Testament uh, verses, it's maybe even a song, Paul writes the Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish, selfish ambition. Uh, instead, let this mind be in you which also was in the anointed one, Christ, Jesus. And he goes through the story in this song of how Jesus died to himself, he lowered himself and kept lowering himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then God raised him back to life. We must take the same path. We can have, that's the mind that Jesus had, and we've got to think in the same way every single day. That's got to be our thought pattern and our motivation, to have the same thoughts as Jesus Christ did. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in the Anointed One. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance, fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So Jesus walked around the next uh, couple days or whenever this happened exactly, don't know, but he walked around for a time with the fragrance that stood out. You would have known, I mean, not everybody smells this good because this is a lot of money, right? So not everybody's anointed. Jesus is the only one who's been anointed. And we, being followers of Christ, we are anointed as well. And we must also, or we also walk around um, with this fragrance. Okay, I'm going to pause there before the next section. It's kind of a little bit of a switch. I think you had your hand up. I was just going to say a while ago that this woman uh, says nothing. The disciples mm. kind of led by Judas, uh, really indignant. Yep. She says nothing. She says no words. Right, right. I think that's huge. It kind of goes to that virtue signaling thing again. Virtue signaling, you're willing to talk about your virtues. She's, she just does it, doesn't have to say anything. Yes. Good point. Anybody else? Okay, I think this is pretty fascinating, but this is kind of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Jesus during the last week. And there's a portion of the city, uh, an, the Essene Quarter is kind of what it's known as. Um, it's at the edge of the city. We'll, we'll look back at this map in a second, but we've talked some. The Essenes saw themselves as the righteous priests. They thought the temple was corrupted, and uh, the priests um, had corrupted the temple enough that God had left, some viewed it. And most Essenes lived in the wilderness. So this is where you get Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's associated with the Essenes in the wilderness. But there were a few of them who lived in the city of Jerusalem. But they did not go to the temple. Um, in the Essene quarter, uh, women were not allowed there. 
because that was, they were the priests. Now, I, I think, I've, oh, I've heard different things, but women were allowed in the wilderness communities with the Essenes. So it's a little different in Jerusalem. No, no women in this part of the city because it was the Essene priests. And this is very fascinating, but they believed they functioned as the living temple, uh, embodied and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they believed that one day the Spirit would call, come on them at Pentecost and anoint them. The Essenes believed that. Now that's pretty fascinating that in Acts 2 we see that happening, but there are people from all over the world, right? All different nations and languages in one place. So the Essenes almost had it right, but they were too narrow-minded. And Jesus, in different places, criticizes them pretty specifically, um, but it's, it's kind of hard to see it unless you have some context for the Essenes. Now, Jesus says in Matthew, or, and then we'll transition to Luke, who explains it differently, where do you want us to prepare the Passover, uh, Passover meal? The disciples ask Jesus this. And he says, as you enter the city, a man carrying water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So Matthew doesn't explain it. It doesn't say it quite that way. But that's how Jesus answers the question. The interesting context is that carrying water is a woman's job in that day. Men don't carry water at all. So, if... if only women carry water, and Jesus says, look for a man carrying water. The only place that kind of really makes sense for that would be the Essene part of the city. And scholars have, seen, or have studied that they, there was kind of an upper room in this part where the Essenes had a messianic banquet prepared for when the Messiah came back, or when the Messiah came. So, again, this doesn't, you know, 100% this is where it was, but it makes a lot of sense that the Last Supper would have been in the Essene part of the city. And it is also interesting that the Essenes didn't worship in the temple, so they didn't use the traditional sacrifices. Instead, they used bread and wine as symbols of sacrifice. I, I think this is... True, y'all can fact check me in Genesis, but I believe that, you know, Melchizedek is a high priest. Remember, Abraham meets Melchizedek, and they eat bread and wine together. And the Essenes kind of saw themselves in the order of Melchizedek. So, um, anyway, so that's where... I think that gives an interesting context, at least, for Jesus' Passover meal. I'll pause there for any... Yes? I was just, I'm always fascinated by the fact that you said earlier that Jesus wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a lot. I don't remember him ever caring about where he laid his head, mm -hmm. where he ate a meal. 
you know, he didn't really, and this has always shown me that he has instant access to whatever he wants. I mean, with the snap of a finger, follow this guy, go to this room, you know, and it wasn't for himself, it was for his sacrifice. He, he, he had, I've always thought he had complete access to all the world's goods or whatever, mm -hmm. but he didn't care about that until it was time for him to die. He said, look, this is how you're going to remember me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. For the rest of my life, this is how you're going to remember me. So right. it was important, and he had instant, instant access to it, and I always thought that the, the, this time of, it was very crowded, and it would have been really hard to find a place to meet the Passover, right? I right, mean, yeah. The city was flooded with people. Right. Yeah. And then in Hebrews, the 6th chapter and 7th chapter is where it refers to Jesus as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Right. Yeah. Yes. And did you think John the Baptist was causing probably he does a lot of things and says a lot of things that are Essene-ish. It reflects at least some influence. Paul, there's a lot of language that Paul uses that is Essene and Dead Sea Scroll-ish. The church and kind of the way he describes what the church should be has influence of the Essenes. I think where John differs from the Essenes and why I don't think he is. The Essenes left the established city life and went into the wilderness and separated themselves from everybody else. And there wasn't much of a go back to the city and live, among the, live holy among the people. But it was not only to separate yourself geographically, not just in virtue and integrity and dedication to the Scripture. But John, if you remember, tells tax collectors and tells soldiers, hey, go back and, you know, in your job, and your normal life, be this way and not that way. Whereas the, an Essene would probably say, no, get out of that because that place is corrupted. Come be out here where you can dedicate yourself wholly to the Scriptures 100%. So I think that's where they differ. So in Jesus... Um, again, kind of that narrow view they, the Essenes had of who's in, it's this small group, it's us, and everybody else is out. That's where they were wrong. But the Essenes were right about so many things, like we pointed out with, you know, that the Spirit would come and live among them. Um, and it would, the Spirit would come and anoint them at Pentecost. Well, that happens in Acts chapter 2, but it's not just to them. So they're a little the more black and white, dualistic, who's in, who's out, in times, at any time. John's kind of that way, but then he differs in some key ways too. So that's why I think he wasn't, even though there's a lot of things he says and Jesus says that reflect their respect, I think, for the Essenes. Because these guys studied the Scriptures intensely. Probably 20 hours a day. I mean, you know, I mean, what I know about the Essenes, I think I, I need at least one-tenth of their commitment to God. Um, I mean, they were all in. So I think that's where 
Does that make sense a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, remember the Pharisees and the Essenes came from the same movement, but the Essenes thought the Pharisees weren't serious enough. And the Pharisees were very serious, yes. and they the were good people. The Essenes thought they were liberal. So that tells you how, and that's why the Essenes removed themselves from culture, mm -hmm. is that they said that's where the Pharisees were wrong, because mm -hmm. Pharisees lived in culture trying to teach people. The Essenes totally removed themselves, other than the fact that they knew the Messiah had to come to Jerusalem, which is why they leave their, their priest, essentially, in Jerusalem, waiting for the, the Messiah to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, again, on this um, may, maybe slash likely, I think, I think likely, uh, well, and you kind of see it here, it says House of the Last Supper, but right in the corner part of the city, this is maybe where Jesus had his Passover meal with the disciples. Um, in the meal... There's this conversation that Jesus says, kind of pointing to that he will be betrayed during the Passover meal with, by one of the disciples. He who dips his hands with me in the dish will betray me. And some interesting context from Psalm 41. Again, the disciples know the scriptures backwards and forwards too. Probably not to the extent that Essenes do. But these are teenagers who know the Bible extremely well. And it, it would be likely that they would recall verses. That's how they think. They think in Scripture. They act in Scripture. And so they hear this and they may think of Psalm 41. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friends, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. So, this might be, Jesus might be alluding to uh, Psalm 41 when he says this. Again, people in that day, devoted Jews, think in Scripture, talk in Scripture, act with this idea of embodying the verses that they know so deeply in their hearts and in their minds. And um, that, I think that may be part of what's going on here. Yes. I always thought the fishermen, guys that were out there fishing, probably wouldn't know a lot about Scripture. Is that, you don't think that, you think they're pretty well? Uh, yeah, I think they. And, mm -hmm. and they, now, the, the educational system at that point, they probably knew more deeply the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's kind of where that timeline of their lives were focused on studying only the best of the best and the smartest of the smartest, the uber qualified got to be disciples of a rabbi. These are probably teenagers. Disciples are teenagers, not 45-year-olds. And they, um, if they're fishing, they're 
that's probably, they, everybody, everybody, most people want to be disciples of a rabbi. Most people don't get in. And so they probably didn't get in. And then Jesus comes to them and says, he picks them, which is also not common. Usually the potential disciple picks the rabbi he wants to walk behind and learn from. So for Jesus to proactively go to them and pick them, that's not normal. Uh, there's a misconception about how well educated they were. The, the, uh, prior to this, it was decreed that all young Jewish men, and women for that matter, mm -hmm, would mm -hmm. spend their first few years studying the Scriptures. Yep. And so that's what they did. And if you were exceptional at, at, after about 13, you went on and, and uh, followed a rabbi. Right. In their case, it could have been Jesus. Right. And uh, uh, so they were very well-read people. They extremely smart. It's the kind of a Harvard, Yale area of Bible knowledge. That that Galilee area. When they went into captivity. Who were the people that became the scribes and all the, uh, the well-read people? No one could read except these Jews. Right. And a lot of it was uh, oral communication, too. So that's why you had a lot of... Parables were extremely common. All rabbis used parables. Jesus is not coming up with something new. Uh, he probably told a lot of parables that were already known. Parables that we see um, in the Bible. So, yes, it's um, very difficult. It's very... Most people don't get to follow a rabbi. Um, and they were very smart. And they knew the scriptures very well, even teenagers. Um, yeah. Okay, to keep with the Passover theme, Jesus says when they're in the garden, and he has a few of the even closer disciples to him, they leave the group, and he says, stay here and watch with me. Remember, they're falling asleep. And he says, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. The Passover meal is the night of watching. You, you stay up at night and wait in anticipation for what God is going to do. In Exodus 12, when it, the Passover, the original Passover, it says, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil or to keep watch, to be alert, to be ready to honor the Lord for generations to come. So Jesus, in the sense, is saying to these disciples who are falling asleep in the garden, He says, will you not even obey the Torah? Are you, are you not going to obey the Torah? There's more than just, hey, don't take a nap right now. It's like, hey, this is, this is key to our identity, and God, our God commanded it. Stay up and pray and be awake and be ready for what's about to happen. Remember, we talked about this last week, if you were in here, in Matthew 25, uh, in the parable of the five wise virgins waiting on the bridegroom and the five foolish virgins. He says at the end of that story, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Be ready. This is the night of the Passover. We stay awake. We stay alert because the Lord stayed awake and stayed alert originally. God did it first. 
we follow. Jesus then says, and there's probably so much more to this than what I'm going to at least point out briefly here. During the arrest, Jesus says, all this was done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In Lamentations 4, it says, the Lord's anointed, our very life breath was caught in their traps. Um, I think that's a fascinating illusion. Um, but again, you know, the challenge to me when I, if, if I'm there and I hear Jesus say, the scriptures are fulfilled, I, this, and I'm, I'm saying this for, for me, I know that I don't know the Old Testament well enough to think, oh, he means that verse and that verse and that verse and that verse. Which I'm guessing a lot of devoted Jews would think that way. Oh, this scripture is fulfilled, and this one, and this one. And this is the thing with, uh, again, this, this view that at least I grew up in of we're New Testament Christians. Is, well, what scriptures are fulfilled? Well, we don't know because we're New Testament Christians. But Jesus is not saying, hey, you remember in Romans when it says that's fulfilled. Well, it hadn't been written yet, you know. So he's talking about the Old Testament. Jesus was not a New Testament Christian. He was an Old Testament Jew. We want to be like Jesus. Therefore, to, to a large extent, we have got to become Old Testament Jews. There's no way around it, I don't think, if we want to be like Jesus. So we've got to know our Old Testament and, um, because there's probably so many... Um, inspiring and enlightening things to this scripture being fulfilled right here. And I'll acknowledge I'm pretty limited too on what else he could be alluding to right here. Anything, any comments or thoughts on this? And then we'll move to the, we're moving quick because there's like 75 verses and a lot's happening fast. So I'll pause for a second. Mm -hmm. Last Supper, he tells John, I think, you know, he's going to dip. He'll show who, who is the traitor, and he'll dip his bread, and the first one who gets the bread. Right. Dip. So it almost like he identifies, me the traitor, and then everybody's saying, you know, was it me, is it me, is it me? It just seems like that whole thing was just totally ignored. I've always been... Yeah. It is interesting because it's told a little differently, whereas in this one, in Matthew, it seems like they both dipped at the same time. And Jesus says, you're the one. I think it is in John where he's, he, it, it appears that Jesus dips and then gives it to him. John seems to describe Jesus as a little more in control of the situation as he's going along. But yeah, it's a, it's a little different. The details of that are a little different, I think, in John than the other three. Yeah. And it's also part of that looking retrospective versus in the moment, because in the meal, everybody's dipping your unleavened bread into the bowl with Jesus. I mean, that's how you eat the meal. So when Jesus says that, all twelve of the apostles are going, "Wait a minute." Is it going to be me? Because I did that. Mm -hmm. You know, and you, know, you got John who's written 50 years later looking mm -hmm. backwards. Yep. And because very obvious who that was at that point. But, you know, a lot of, while you're in the moment, sometimes it's not as clear mm -hmm. 
as it is retrospectively. Yeah. And I think that's what all the apostles are looking at and going, like, is it, you know, because you know, you know Peter's saying that. Right. He always jumps in for everything. Right. Yeah. So, you know, he's going, it's going to be me. Right. Which is why he says, I'm not, I'm not going to die. Yeah. And, yes. So what, what scriptures are we, what, what should we be studying from the Old Testament? Well, what was he? I mean, where are we going to find this? Exodus, Lamentations, like, you know, but. Yeah, De Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, I think, the most of all of, all of them. Um, Isaiah talks, you know, like Josh is pointing out in sermons right now, Isaiah is a lot about, has a lot of sections on when the Messiah comes back, what's it going to be like? When, what does this mean? And so, you know, I. Well, I think uh, two things. One, on the Jewish education system. The first book that, and I think it's still today for devoted Jews in the education system, the first book they study in the Torah is Leviticus. That's like the last book we would want to look at. You know, I think about that when we're doing stories with Brooks. Yeah, and like we want to do David and Goliath and Jonah and, you know, you know Samson. It's, now we're going to do Leviticus tonight. We're going to read Leviticus before we go to bed, you know. Um, so that's, that's one. I mean, I, I think I quote him every week because he is a big deal to me. But Warren Buffett, big investor, stocks, everything. Someone asked him, well, like, you know all about this. So, you know, what would you tell some young aspiring person who wants to be like you? How do they learn about all these companies? And he says, start with the A's. It's the same thing here, I think. Start in Genesis and go deep and then but go through the whole whole thing. I mean Yeah, just all out effort. I think that's the one of the inspirations to me of the Essenes and their and Jesus himself. Jesus put in the time and the effort to be the great teacher that he was. I don't think he just was born a great rabbi. He had to grow up and learn his way into what he, what we know him as. So it's, it's. I think it's just hard work, and it's you know, learn and learning from each other and a devotion to the scripture, um, and yeah. I so I don't, I don't have specific advice as much as say. You know, go hard, every week. <laughs> I guess is how I feel about it, which is hard to do. And I would just add that. Um, Every time we go and approach the scripture, we can expect to learn something new. And we can expect even the things that we've read and studied over and over again, the Holy Spirit is going to show us some new things in those passages that we've never noticed before. So mm -hmm. it, it keeps on giving. It's not something that we can just do once, say, I've read all, this, all the Bible once, that's all there is, you know. It, mm -hmm. it just expands in our lives. It's yep. such a blessing. And I, another thing I think about is we shouldn't always study with the, um, how can I take this and apply it today? A lot of times you're going to, I mean, a lot of this we're reading and there's, there's not a specific application that I can do this afternoon. A lot of times you're going to read and you're going to walk away uninspired or unchanged, or not, a, you know, 
But God's word, God is still speaking through the scriptures, and it will come out, that fruit will grow out of the ground when God is ready for it to grow out of the ground. Give it time. It is not just a what do you do now, it is some of that, but it's also a very slow and deep reorienting of how we think and how we feel and how we approach circumstances. That, that is slow and takes time, is, a, is another way I think about how the scriptures play out. Okay, last slide. I'll be um, quick here, but the Sadducees, again, are trying Jesus. They took the Torah literally, and they didn't believe in any of the rest of the Bible. And they are breaking the Torah during the trial of Jesus when they have him in the temple. Deuteronomy 19 says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It does kind of allude to them trying to get a couple of people to agree on something he did wrong, and they couldn't do it. In Matthew, it's kind of portrayed as, hey, they couldn't get the witnesses together. So then... uh, you know, I think Caiaphas says to Jesus, who do you think you are? Are you the son of man? Jesus says, you're right. So it's an interesting ordeal um, here. And then last, I would say, this is the very last few verses of the chapter. Jesus, of course, takes Peter back in the end as a disciple. That, is, that would be unheard of. Again, the devotion the disciples have to their rabbis uh, is probably kind of hard for us to comprehend. It's hard to compare it to something but uh, in our context, but it would be unheard of, and Jesus took him back. But the devotion a disciple has to the rabbi, a denial would be unheard of because the disciple's goal is to, you want to be so much like the rabbi that your voice sounds like him. So that's the picture, I think, for as we try to be like Jesus. And again, which includes, among other things, includes knowing the Old Testament very well or spending a lot of time in it so that God can change us through it. Um, that, you know, again, how, how much do we want to be like Jesus? Uh, it's not about being the smartest and the most accomplished, but how, how badly do we want it, um, I think, is part of the challenge um, from this. Okay, that's all I've prepared. What? Any other closing thoughts or ideas or questions? Thanks for uh-huh. I just find it so amazing in our society today the focus on being a good Bible student is weighted on this. Mm-hmm. And in our, you know, we want to try to be up on politics, what's going on in the world, uh, you know, our jobs, our family, taking care of people. And it's, it's hard for me to think of that emphasis on being a, a like these, the Jews, all the studying that they did to be a good Jew. That, mm-hmm. just, that just amazes me. Yeah, it is. It's. It's fascinating, and it's different than the Christian view, at least in the South, Southern American Christian view. I agree.
Um, okay, so this is my last Sunday teaching. Uh, it's been awesome, uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for being here. I'm honored. And then this is my last Sunday at Otter Creek. So, so we're moving to Atlanta, me and my wife. So it's an awesome place. Keep up, keep up the good work. Love you guys. Can I wait for you? Yeah, it'll be great.